Everybody make some noise if you're glad to be in church today. Come on. How about make some noise if you're glad it's day 21 of a 21-day fast? I know I'm glad. I know I'm glad. My family's glad. This team is glad. Welcome, Short North, Whitehall, Polaris, Hilliard, those tuned in on television, online, joining us from a prison correctional facility. Come on, would you put your hands together? Let's welcome all of our friends and family who are gathered today. We have been just overwhelmed by the response. Two of the last three weeks have been all-time just record-breaking attendance weeks. And, and last Sunday at the 11 o'clock, I actually got to meet a man named Corey in the lobby. Corey had just three days prior been released from prison, and it was his first time worshiping in person with his already church family. And what I love about the story of Corey is not just that he found Rock City behind bars and that he worshiped with us at 11 o'clock last week at our Hilliard location, but that he could sit at the 11 o'clock with six of his family members because, again, 900 people said, we're going to move to make room for people like Corey. And so thank you for doing that. Um, pictures, I hope, to be coming soon, but on Wednesday night while our church was... Uh, was celebrating together, praying together, worshiping together on Wednesday night. I was at a prison location where actually the prison that Corey came from, I was there with some volunteers of ours where we baptized another 19 men behind bars on Wednesday night. So uh, awesome. Praise God for that. We're getting close to reaching the, the 1,000th prison baptism. We are very, very, very close. Like, like maybe single digits, maybe just a few more than single digits. So I, I think probably by our next prison baptism, we're going to cross the thousand men and women baptized behind bars, Mark. So, so get ready for that. We're going to celebrate when, when that happens. But today we're going to continue our series, Breakthrough to a New You. And um, I've actually asked Pastor Patrick Crawford to preach today. So I'm going to be sitting with you and learning with you. I've, I've, I've given uh, Patrick an easy message. I told him, why don't you speak on the encouraging message of sin to our church? I, I know I look, I could do it. I know it's, it's, that's an easy message to preach. And if you want, I can do it. But I feel like maybe the Lord has graced you for this message. And so would you do this at every location? Would you stand up one more time? Put your hands together. Give a big Rock City welcome. Come on to Pastor Patrick Crawford. Welcome to church, everybody. You can be seated. You can be seated. Welcome to church. Um, as you might be able to notice, my voice sounds a little bit different today. I promise I didn't wake up five minutes ago. I've been up. All right, I've been up. I'm just a little bit under the weather because anybody who has had toddlers know that when toddlers are sick, you sick. All right, I feel like they try to get you sick. They'll look you dead in your face and they'll cough right in your eyes. You know, like, how you feeling, Dad? Are you feeling okay? You feeling sick yet? Yes, baby, I'm feeling sick. Thank you for sharing. So that's where we're at, but um, thank you, Pastor Chad and Katie, for uh, just this opportunity to be here and to preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, I don't have anything to add to the intro that we just got, so if you don't mind, I'm just going to pray for us, and then we're going to hop right in. Is that okay? All right, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak by your spirit and through your word. We are here to hear from you. Lord, would you remove distractions? 
Lord, so that we can hear very clearly what it is that you want to say to us today. May you be glorified today in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, as Pastor Chad had mentioned today, we're talking about breaking through to a new you by breaking free from sin. Some of you are probably just a little bit uncomfortable already, squirming in your seat a little bit. You know, maybe this is your first time at Rock City and you're wondering, is this one of those types of churches that talk about sin? Yes, yes we are. All right, because the word of God talks about sin. Jesus talks about sin a lot. And if we're gonna follow Jesus, we should probably talk about what he talks about. Right, the fact of the matter is there is nobody harder on sin than Jesus. Nobody hates sin more than Jesus or takes sin more seriously than Jesus, and so should we. At the same time, there is nobody who has more forgiveness, more love and compassion, more mercy for sinners than Jesus, and so should we. So there may be moments in this message where you feel a little bit uncomfortable. That's okay. It's part of the process. Lean into it, because I promise if you stick with me, on the other side of that discomfort, there is immeasurable grace and mercy for each and every one of us. Amen? But I know there are very few words that can make our culture squirm like the word sin. You can say or do just about anything that you want in our culture, but as soon as you say sin or you label a particular behavior as sinful, the pitchforks come out. Because who are you to judge? The world has gone through incredible lengths to avoid the concept of sin, even down to our language. Think about the last time you heard the word sin outside of church. Never, probably, never. It's completely gone from our vocabulary. Right? In our culture, we don't really call it the sin of adultery. We call it following your heart or the heart wants what the heart wants or we just fell out of love. You know how it is sometimes. We don't call it the sin of gossip. What we call it? Spilling the tea. <laughs> Some of y'all real uncomfortable now. Y'all love spilling tea. You know what that's called? It's called gossip. We don't call it the sin of unkindness or harshness. We call it keeping it real. You know, we turn it into a virtue. You know me, I'm just a blunt person. I'm an honest person. I'm just honest. That's a virtue, right? Or, you know, we get real creative, some of us, and we say, you know, I can't help it. I'm a Gemini. <laughs> Sagittarius, whatever them things is, you know what I'm talking about. You know who you are, right? No, you're just unkind, right? Let's just call it what it is. But we don't want to call anything sin anymore. The world has no category for the idea of sin. There's a few things that we maybe should and shouldn't do, right? But pretty much is live and let live because this antiquated idea of sin is oppressive and it's psychologically damaging. We've evolved beyond that. We have liberated ourselves from such primitive superstition. Even as I was drafting the ideas for this sermon in my notes app on my phone, every time I typed the word sin, my phone tried to autocorrect it to sun, S-U-N. It's like, did you mean to say that Jesus came to save us from our son? No, Siri or Steve Jobs or whoever is possessing my phone, I meant what I said. Now, unfortunately, though, this is not just limited to the world. Even in the church, we downplay the seriousness of sin. We water it down to the point that almost nothing is sin anymore, at least nothing we would ever do, right? Right In the church, we can redraw the line so that sin is just something out there, but it doesn't really affect us. I don't have any in my heart. I might sin a little bit here and there, but it's no big deal. At least I'm forgiven. All is good. I can sin as much as I want. Or if we're really clever, we find loopholes and technicalities to avoid addressing the ugly realities of our own sins. Like, I know sexual immorality is wrong. I hear you, Jesus. I hear you, but hear me out. What is sexual immorality, really? You know? 
Like, what if we don't go all the way? What if we just go to third base or second base or first base? Whatever that is for you, don't think about it too hard. (laughs) What if we leave our clothes on and get real creative? Or better yet, what if we're engaged? Does that count, Jesus? Is that sin? I know gluttony's a sin, but what is gluttony anyway? I mean, I know yesterday I drowned my sorrows in three bags of Cheetos and a pint of Ben and Jerry's, but isn't gluttony more of like a four bag of Cheetos type of sin? (laughs) What is sin anyway? Maybe we could just boil sin down to the big three. All right, let's just keep it simple. You know the big three, sex, drugs, and alcohol. Or if you were an overprotective parent in the 1950s, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Remember how scary that was? You don't. Your parents do. Or if you grew up Baptist, sex, drugs, and premarital dancing, right? Just avoid these big three things and you will be good. Everything else is not that bad. It's secondary. We don't really want to call sin, sin anymore. But the problem with that is that the Lord will never deal with the sin that we don't confess. We got to call it out. We got to name it. We got to call it what it is. If we fail to acknowledge our sin, we will forfeit our ability to be free from it. You want to be free today? Then we have to call sin what it is. Step one, we have to call sin what it is. And I'm not talking about those churchy euphemisms that we sometimes use as substitutes that are a little bit more emotionally palatable and friendly Instead of the biblical language in a biblical language of sin, we call it, you know, like, like brokenness. Now hear me, there is brokenness. It's very real. Many of you here today are broken. There is brokenness, but there's also sin, right? We, we might not call it sin. We just say, I made a mistake or I missed the mark or you know, what I did, I know it wasn't really God's best for me. And while all those things are true, when we substitute the biblical terminology for those things, we're really just softening the blow a little bit too much. So let's look at what the word of God has to say about sin. Jeremiah 2, 17, have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Isaiah 1, verse 2, hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children up and brought them up. That is, he delivered the people of Israel, but they have rebelled against me. Titus 1, 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. James 4.4 4 says this, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world, that is the sin of the world, means enmity against God. If you choose to be a friend of the world, you become an enemy of God. For good measure, Romans 8, 7 through 8 says, the mind that is ruled by the power of sin is at war with God. It doesn't obey God's law, it can't. Those who are under the power of sin cannot please God, this is what the Bible says. Sin is forsaking the Lord. It's rebellion against him. It is denying the Lord. It is waging war against the Lord as your enemy. Your heavenly father who loves you, we count him as an enemy when we sin against him. This is why it doesn't work to try to add Jesus to your life with no intention of subtracting sin from your life. Because you're either at war with your sin or you are at war with God. And when we understand sin in these terms, we see that sin is never really a victimless crime. Even those secret sins that we tuck away in our hearts, those sins that are not really hurting anyone, no one even has to know about this. Even then, sin is still a personal affront to a holy God. Even those secret sins, it is a personal affront, an offense to a holy God. When King David, the king of Judah, 
In the Old Testament, he slept with Bathsheba while she was married to Uriah, and Uriah was off at war fighting King David's battle, and she became pregnant, and King David tried to cover up his sin by having Uriah killed. Eventually, when he was confronted and he repented of his sins and wrote this in Psalm 51, this is what he had to say about his sin. Against you and you alone, O God, have I sinned. Now, that wasn't technically true, was it? He sinned against Bathsheba. He definitely sinned against Uriah, but I think David understood that in addition to whoever else our sin hurts, fundamentally every sin at its root is a sin against God. Every sin breaks the commands of God. It tarnishes the image of God that we carry around within us. It profanes the holy name of God. It grieves the heart of God. There is no small sin when we put it in these terms. Now, I wish I had more language to communicate the seriousness of sin to you today, but I don't. But I think maybe the words of Jesus could do the trick. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, starting in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, the hand, we might understand, the hand could be used to kill a man. The hand can be used to oppress someone, to hurt someone. But the only sin that you can commit with your eye is an internal sin. You can't hurt nobody with your eye except for the Lord. It is a sin that hurts no one but God. But Jesus says, even those sins are so serious, it's better to rip your eye out. Now, Jesus is using hyperbole. All right. He's trying to make a point. Nobody go home and take your eyes out and take your hands off. That would be weird. It's ill-advised, but that's how serious it is to Jesus. And we have to face this head on because the fact of the matter is we have all sinned. We have all sinned, each and every one of us. Romans 3, starting in verse 10, says this, none is righteous. It's pretty clear. No, not one. It's even more clear. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Even more clear. All have turned aside Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. It seems like Paul is trying to drive home a point. And he does it one more time in verse 33. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, no one is righteous according to God's perfect standard, which is his own holiness. And we can compare ourselves to our friends and our neighbors and feel really good about ourselves. But when we compare ourselves to the holiness of God, we all fall short. According to the scripture, even compared to God's righteousness, our righteousness is as filthy rags. We break God's law every day, and I probably don't need to convince you of that here today. But the reason that we all sin against God is actually deeper than what we do. It's because we were all born into sin. This is what the scripture says about sin. We are all born into it. Psalm 51 verse 5, this is what David said. He said, surely I was sinful at birth from the time my mother conceived me. We learn a little bit more about this concept in Romans 5 when Paul basically tells us that when Adam, the very first human, when he rejected God's will and authority in favor of his own desires, sin entered not only the heart of Adam, but all of creation. And that sin was passed down to every human being born after Adam. See, from birth, our hearts are bent towards sin. We are primed and ready to follow the example of our first ancestor, Adam, to reject the will of God for our lives in favor of our own desires. This is why Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, what this means 
is that sin is not just a list of do's and don'ts. It is deeper than our external behavior. Sin at its root is an issue of the heart. It's a heart that prefers anything over and above God. See, it's the sinful heart that says God's commands may be wise and just and good according to him. But, you know, me, I would prefer to follow my own wisdom and follow my own moral compass. I know that God is offering peace and comfort if I just surrender to him, but I'd rather find peace at the bottom of a wine bottle. I know God is offering me purpose and fulfillment if I live for him, but I would rather find my fulfillment in my career or in my relationships or in my grades. I know that God will esteem me if I live a humble life serving him and living for his glory, but I'd rather have my glory now being esteemed and celebrated and admired by my peers. I know that God is offering me immeasurable joy, but if I'm honest, I prefer the joy that comes from a football game. It's quiet in here, in the house of the Lord. Now look, there's nothing wrong with football. There's nothing wrong with career or relationships or good grades, but when we prefer those things to the glory of God and his will and his presence, that is a heart that is steeped in sin. And that's the heart that we're all born with. And now this really complicates, sin, complicates things because if, if sin was just something that I could deal with through behavior modification, then I could deal with my sin with a therapist or a really good life coach or a strict system of accountability. But if sin is something that infects the deepest recesses of my heart, then I need something far more powerful than a therapist. I need a savior. We need a savior. This is the boat that we're all in. We are born in need of a miracle because without the transforming power of Jesus Christ, our sin cannot ever be dealt with. And our sin that is not dealt with will inevitably lead us to death. Sin leads to death. This is the other thing we see in the scriptures. It is very clear, James 1, 14 to 16. When each person is tempted, when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Sin kills our purpose. It kills our peace. Sin limits our potential for kingdom impact. It kills our satisfaction in every relationship, and especially our relationship with the Lord. Sin kills everything that it touches. And if left unchecked, it will kill us too, separating us from God forever. Now, maybe you're here thinking, and you're thinking to yourself, oh, man, it's a good thing I'm saved and forgiven. I don't really have to worry about this sin thing anymore. I, I came to the altar call. I gave my life to Jesus, so now I can sin as much as I want. Clearly, this message isn't for me. Well, if that's you, you might actually be in the worst position of all. Let me explain. Well, let the Word of God explain. Hebrews 10, starting in verse 26, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. See, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Listen to this language. Treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the spirit of grace. Now, whether you've grown up in the church or this is your first time Here, when we look at the scriptures, it is clear there is no more serious battle to which we must put our attention than to the battle of sin. And on our own, we are helpless against it. Now, here's the good news. I promise you it was coming. I know some of you were thinking, when does it get good? It gets good right here. 
Because yes, we are all sinners, but Christ died for sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we cleaned up our mess, Christ died for sinners. Yes, we are all born with a sin nature, but in Christ we are made new and we receive a new heart and a new nature. Yes, sin does lead to death, but Jesus willingly took that death upon himself to spare us the judgment that we deserve. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the right righteousness of God in Jesus Christ, guilty though we are. That's reason to clap, church. That is the good news of the gospel. Only in the gospel can we look sin straight in the face, call it what it is. Only in the gospel can we fully acknowledge the depths of our own sinfulness and not be crushed under the weight of it because Jesus bore that weight for us. And here's the truth. He bore that weight not just to forgive us of our sins, but to free us from its power. Amen. Christ died not just to forgive us, but to free us. It's easy to forget this at times, but let's look at Romans 6, starting in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self, that is our sin nature, was crucified with Jesus so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Amen indeed. Now this doesn't mean that we never sin. It just means that we don't have to sin anymore. It doesn't mean that our sin nature no longer remains in us, just that it no longer reigns in us. Amen. In Jesus Christ, we have a new king, a new authority, a new nature, and now we are freed up to wage war, not against God, but against the sin inside of us that is killing us. Christian, once you give your life to Jesus, you will still be at war. The difference is that you now have switched teams and now your fighting is guaranteed to end in victory. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. But if you look around, the Christians that you know, it seems that there are very few Christians who are actually walking in victory and freedom from their sin, right? At times, it's hard to tell the difference between people who profess Jesus and people in the world who have never met Jesus before. Seems at times that Christians are beset with the same addictions and the same discontentment, the same cynicism and hopelessness as the rest of the world. Think about the Christians you know. They are often just as bitter, just as unforgiving, just as promiscuous, just as given to drunkenness and gossip as those outside of the church. How could this be? Why is this? Is the blood of Jesus not sufficient? Is the power of the Holy Spirit not enough to help us walk in holiness? No, God forbid. It, it cannot be that. I think the problem has to be with us somewhere. Right? Part of the problem is that in order to walk in the freedom that Jesus bought for us, we have to put in a little bit of work. Right? Forgiveness of our sins is free. We repent, we confess, we call on the name of Jesus, and we are declared innocent right there on the spot. But to walk in the real freedom from the power of sin requires us to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, to work alongside of him. He's not going to automatically do it for us. Now, if you've been here the last few weeks, Pastor Chad has mentioned something along these lines. He's mentioned this exactly, actually, that we work out our faith for it is God who works in us. Romans 8 puts it like this in the context of our sin. If you live according to your flesh, you will die because sin leads to death. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit you put to death. The Spirit enables you, but you have to do the fighting. The fight is difficult, but here's what we have to understand. It's not complicated. Don't overcomplicate it. The Lord has given us the tools and the power to fight against our sin. And most of the time, those tools and that wisdom is very simple. They're powerful, though, if we can discipline ourselves to grow in them consistently over time. Here's an illustration. I heard this years ago. Maybe you've heard it. There was a man of faith, and he was on his porch praying to the Lord as he always did, and a storm came over his neighborhood, and the flood water started to rise, and somebody's walking past his house and was like, hey, man, I heard a flood is coming. You should probably get up out of here. And the man says, you don't understand. I have faith. The Lord will deliver me. So he continues to pray, and the waters continue to rise, and before you know it, the waters had risen to the second floor, and the man is now on the balcony, and he's praying to the Lord. And a boat drives by and says, hey, man, the floodwaters are not stopping anytime soon. You need to get in the boat so we can get up out of here. The man says, you don't understand. I have faith. The Lord will deliver me. So the boat drives away. The man continues to pray and the waters continue to rise. And before you know it, the man is on the roof of his house and the water is up to the roof. And he's praying and another boat drives by and says, bro, you got to get in this boat, man. Like the waters are not stopping. You got to get out of here. And the man says, you don't understand. I'm a man of faith. I know that the Lord will deliver me. So the boat drives away and the man continues to pray and the waters continue to rise. And before you know it, the man is holding on to the top of his chimney as the water is at his chin and a helicopter flies by overhead and they drop a ladder down and they yell to the man, hey, bro, you got to grab onto this ladder. This is your last chance. You got to get out of here. And the man replies, you don't understand. I'm a man of faith. I know that the Lord will deliver me. And so the helicopter flies away and the man continues to pray and the waters continue to rise. And wouldn't you know it, the man drowns. And he gets to heaven and he confronts the Lord and he says, God, how could you leave me like that? I trusted you. I believed in your power. I knew you would save and deliver me, but you forsook me when I needed you the most. And God looks at him. He says, what are you talking about, man? I sent you two boats and a helicopter. Now, look, oftentimes we're expecting the Lord to show up in fantastic ways with lightning bolts and fire from heaven. We expect to just miraculously wake up and no longer deal with the addictions that we had for 20 years prior to Sunday. We expect to just wake up and no longer have the desires for sin at all. And we are just shocked and appalled that we would still be tempted after giving our life to Jesus. Because, look, we usually overlook the ordinary ways that God chooses to work out his miracles. Ordinary things like your Bible. We need to live in our Bible if we are going to break free from sin. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're like, I came to church and they're telling me I need to read my Bible. Real original, buddy. But remember, it's the simple things done consistently over time that will lead to breakthrough. But hey, don't take my word for it. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 8, 31 to 32. It's clear as day. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide, that's live, in my word, that is the Bible, if you live in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Do not miss the power of God's word simply because it appears in the simple form of ink and pages. Do not miss this boat. 
Don't let it pass you by. Study the word of God. Memorize it. Pray it. Obey it. Walk in its power. And as you behold the glory of Christ in his written word, you will be transformed over time into the image of Christ in one degree of glory to the next. Because we become what we behold. What you look at consistently, you will look like. So I implore you today to open the word of God and behold the glory of Christ. We need to aim to be like the psalmist who said in Psalm 119 verse 11, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have hidden your word in my heart so that I can take it with me wherever I go because the Bible is far more than ordinary ink and ordinary pages. It is the sword of the spirit. It is living and active, able to discern the thoughts and the intention of its readers. The Bible is the only book that reads you back while you read it. It has the power both to reveal the things in your heart that needs to die, and it has the power to put them to death. Church, pick up your sword. Pick up your sword and fight for your freedom. And as you fight against your sin, make sure that you do not fight alone. Don't fight your sin alone. 1 Peter 5, 8 says that we need to be alert and of sober mind because our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, I don't know how much Peter, the apostle Peter, knew about the hunting habits of lions when he wrote this, but I think he was on to something. See, lions, they normally hunt smaller prey like antelope or zebras, and they stalk them in the tall grass, and they sneak up on them, and before they know it, they just jump on them, and they wrestle them down, and they, you know, they do what lions do. But sometimes lions have been known to take down creatures far more powerful than them, even like small elephants. Not the big daddies, you know, but the smaller ones. But it's still an elephant, y'all. It's impressive. And the way that they normally do this is they find a way to separate one of the smaller or weaker elephants from the protection of the group. And then they surround this poor, helpless, isolated creature, and they do what lions do. Now, Satan is a lot like that. He has no real power over believers who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, but he is crafty. And he's crafty enough to know that if he can get us alone away from the protection of the group... That we are much easier to, as Peter puts it, devour. This is why over and over and over in the New Testament, we are commanded to not forsake the gathering of believers. It's so that we can do, as Hebrews 3 says, and encourage one another every single day. Let's look at Hebrews 3, starting in verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Here's how you do it. Encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We need each other every single day. So if you're watching online or on television and you don't have a way to get here or to another local church in your area, we are grateful to God that he uh, is using this as a resource to serve you and to bless you. If you're watching online or on television and you live three blocks away, Pastor Jay, I got <laughs> Come on. He knows this is for your good. This is for your good. If you are three blocks away, can I encourage you? I'm glad that you're tuning in. Can I encourage you? Come into the gathering. Come into the gathering. Come into the gathering. And if you're here today, you're not off the hook. If you're here today and you show up Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, but that's about it, can I encourage you to take the next step and join a small group? 
form some relationships with the people that you sit in a room with every Sunday. Because at Rock City, we don't just meet on Sundays. We meet every day throughout the week in various small groups all around the city. Because we know, we believe that the best way to connect and to grow is through real, personal, up-close relationships with other believers. So you can confess your sins to one another and pray for one another and encourage one another and hold each other accountable. The Lord works powerfully in the lives of believers when they live it in community. Now, a few weeks ago, we saw a video that was the perfect picture of this. It was a video of a young lady named Maddie. And Maddie had drifted away from the Lord and she was kind of living her own life, doing her own thing. And she found herself in a really difficult situation, kind of a rock bottom moment in her life. Her life had fallen apart. And who did she call in that moment but her small group leader, Homa. And Homa met with, Mally, um, with Maddie, Maddie and they, 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 they talked together and they prayed together. And Homa prayed for her and listened to her and supported her. And the Lord brought Maddie through that rock bottom, life shattering situation. And now she is fully walking with the Lord with zeal and on fire for Jesus, baptized, living a life in Christ that she never had before. The Lord brought her through in large part because of the relationships that she built in small group. We cannot do this life alone. Sin and temptation are far too strong, which is one reason why it's best to just avoid temptation before you need to resist it. Avoid temptation before you need to resist it. Now, this one is just good old common sense advice. See, most of us need to learn how to trust ourselves just a little bit less. We are so likely to overestimate our ability to drive headlong towards the edge of a cliff and then just slam on the brakes right before we cross the line into sin. Can I tell you, that is a recipe for disaster. Don't wait until you're at the edge of the cliff. We need to have a little less confidence in our flesh. Don't wait until you're in the back seat of a car and say, you know, we'll stop before we go too far. You've already gone too far. Just leave. It's time to get up out of there. Don't go to the same parties that you're so used to sinning at and tell yourself, this time I'll only have juice. Just stay home. Stay away from the temptation. It's not worth the fight if you can avoid it. Now, I was listening to a podcast, and on the podcast, there was this man called Jocko Willink. Some of y'all know who this man is. If you don't, he's a retired Navy SEAL, and he's a black belt and an instructor in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. The long and short of it is he's a bad man. All right. He's a bad man. And they were asking, like, if you get in a street fight or a bar fight, like, what do you do? What's your go to? You know, what I mean, are you going to box? Are you going to wrestle him? Are you going to take him to the ground and tie him up in a knot? And Jocko says, 10 times out of 10, if I get in a fight, my first self-defense is my feet. And I'm thinking, dang, you're going to kick him. <laughs> I'm like, that's pretty intense, Jocko. He said, no, my first self-defense is my feet because I'm going to run. I'm running every single time. I don't care if they're half my size. I don't know if they have a knife. I don't know if they have a gun. I don't know. I might hurt them too bad. Now I'm ending up in prison. There is nothing good that can come from this. I have too much to lose and nothing to prove. So I am going to get out of here. What if we saw sin the same way? What if we saw sin as dangerous as it really is? So dangerous that it's better to pluck out your eye than to live in sin. What if we didn't put all of our eggs in the basket of self-control and just rely on having the superhuman ability in the heat of the moment to just stop right there on the spot? What if we used just a little bit of wisdom and just didn't go where sin happens? We could avoid the situation altogether. Resist temptation whenever you must, but avoid temptation whenever you can. And if you do these things, I promise you, you will still sin. 
If you're anything like me, and I know that you are, you will still sin. And when you do sin, do not identify yourself with your sin. This will lead to freedom. Do not identify yourself with your sin. Look, labels are powerful. Psychologists know this. They've known it for a long time. If you tell a kid that you are bad or you're, you're crazy or you're stupid, then often what they will do is they'll behave in a way that confirms the identity that you just gave them. Now, the opposite is also true. If you tell a kid that they're kind and they're intelligent and they're thoughtful, they will begin to behave in a way that confirms the identity you just gave them. It's not isolated in children. They just, you know, they happen to be a little bit more impressionable than most. But it's true of us all. What we do is usually a subconscious response to who we believe ourselves to be. What we do is a response to who we think we are, which is why we have to be very careful how we label people, especially kids who are impressionable, because we don't want people to assume an identity that doesn't belong to them and won't serve them well. Now ask yourself, do you use that same level of caution when you label yourself? Because even if you feel like you are drowning in sin, as a Christian, you have to believe that though you may be sinning, you are no longer a sinner in the way that you were before Christ. That is not who you are anymore. Romans 7, 19 to 20 gives us a picture of this. Paul says, I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. For if I do what I do not want to do, it's like a riddle. It's like a troll standing on a bridge and it's like, you got to answer this before you pass. <laughs> it's no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. Now, here's what we learned. Two important things about sin. One is that we will always be fighting it. Paul did. He's better than me. I don't know about y'all, but if Paul's going to fight it, I'm probably going to fight it. But the second thing is that even if we do sin, our relationship to sin is fundamentally changed after we put our faith in Christ. See, if you have put your faith in Christ, your new identity is this. These are your new labels. Label yourself as this. You are saved. You are forgiven. You are adopted, accepted, chosen. You are part of a holy nation, a royal priesthood. You are alive in Christ. You are the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. Label yourself with that. And no matter how many times you fall into sin or how long you fight a particular besetting sin, never equate the sin that you commit with who you are in Christ. Jesus died to give you a new identity. So would you trust that his death is enough to make you new? And in response to this new godly identity, we need to actively pursue godliness. Out of this new identity, we actively pursue godliness. Romans 6, again, verse 13. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. Resisting sin is just the first part of the equation. Don't offer yourself to sin, but the other part is just as important. Offer every part of yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. That means we don't just avoid temptation. We pursue godliness. We pursue righteousness. We're not just passively sitting by, avoiding sin with our head in the sand. We are pursuing the opposite of sin, which is the glory of Christ. 
I'm talking about aggressively, relentlessly pursuing the glory of Christ. I'm talking about like a dog on the hunt. My head is on a swivel. I'm looking around. Who can I pray for? I'm looking around in conversation. Is there any way I can slide the gospel in here? Is there any way that I can listen to somebody talking about what they need and just go ahead and serve them in secret and in quiet just to meet their need? Is there any way that I can use my eyes for the glory of God? Is there any way I can use my mind to bring him glory? What about my voice or my mouth? Is there any way I can use my time, my talents, my treasure, my home, my finances to bring God glory? I am actively looking for ways to grow in holiness. I'm not waiting for it to find me. I'm not just removing sinful activity, but replacing it with godly activity. Now, look, many of you have at least 21 days of practice in removing and replacing because how many of you know this is the last day of our 21 days of prayer and fasting as a church? Who's happy and hungry? It has been an amazing time. I know that there has been so much breakthrough in this church. I am believing that the Lord did miraculous things in many of your lives. Can I tell you that removing things that Star, that, 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 that kill you and, and, and filling your life with things that give you life. Pastor Chad talked about this. We, we need to starve the things that need to die and, and feed the things that need to grow. That doesn't stop once you start eating, right? It was a good practice these last 21 days for how we should always live in our life. We need to remove sin and replace it with godliness. Galatians 5 puts it like this. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You need to walk, you need to pursue, you need to push. Because breaking free from our sinful flesh is a slow, painful process. It's not a sprint, it's a long walk. Sin has been defeated, but it's not going down without a fight. It takes work, it takes fighting and fleeing and wrestling and walking by the Spirit step after step, day after day. It takes the honest and frequent examination of my own heart to see, Lord, is there any wayward way within me? Remove it from me. It will take the rest of our lives, but it is something worth giving our lives to for the glory of Christ and for the good of our souls. Sin is worth breaking free from. It's hard, but our hope is this that Christ was crucified for sinners and that he rose again with all power in his hand. And if we have been united to him through faith, then we have been freed from the penalty of sin. We are being freed from the power of sin day by day. And one day soon, we will be freed from the presence of sin all together. And when that day comes, there will be no more fighting, there will be no more breakthrough necessary. There will be no more sin, just freedom and joy and peace and the fullness of Christ's presence forever. Now, if you're here today and you know that you have been running from the Lord, maybe you have given your life to him years ago, maybe a couple weeks ago, but you have strayed from him, you've backslidden, you have drifted. Maybe you're here today and you've been living with a secret sin in your life that need to be broken that you need freedom from. Maybe you're here today or you're tuning in and you've never given your life to Christ and you're realizing that your whole entire life was spent fighting against God's will for you. Whatever situation you may be in, you need to know that no matter how long you have been running 
No matter how far you may have run, the journey back to the Lord is always just a single step. Just one single step and you can be restored back to the fullness of life. You can be restored back to the fullness of joy. You can be restored back to the fullness of freedom and a life-giving relationship with your Father in heaven who loves you. You don't have to clean yourself up first. All you have to do is return to him. Now, as we sit and listen to this next song of worship and reflection, I want you to hear the voice of the Lord calling you by name. He is saying to you exactly what he said to his people in Jeremiah 15, 19. Return to me and I will restore you. At every location, would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If you're here today or you're tuning in and you need to be free from your sin, that it is crushing you and draining the life from you and you want freedom, you first need to be forgiven of your sins. And in order to do that, you have to call sin what it is. Take responsibility for your part in it and offer it to the Lord. Here's what 1 John 1.8 says. It says, if anyone claims to be without sin, they are deceiving themselves and the truth is not in them. Just call your sin what it is and the promise of God is this, that anyone who confesses their sin, that God is faithful and just to forgive them their sins and to cleanse them of all unrighteousness. So if today you wanna be saved, forgiven, and set free of your sin, I wanna lead you in a prayer. A prayer of confession and repentance and faith. Would you pray this with me to your heavenly Father who is calling you home? Would you say, Lord, I acknowledge and confess my sin. I know I need a savior. And right now I am calling on the name of Jesus. Would you be my savior? Would you forgive me of my sin and free me of its power so that I can live for you from this day forward? And so that one day soon I can live with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.